Hey there, I'm Joanne Tambrakis, and this is Marketing, Mindfulness, and Martinis. Unfiltered conversations, or as I like to say, opinions shaken, not stirred, on what's changing and what's not in business and in life as we enter into the next normal. So pour yourself your beverage of choice, and let's get to it. Today's guest is Susan Shapiro. Welcome to the podcast, Sue. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. So a little bit about Sue before we get started. Sue is the best-selling author of 13 books. That's right, 13 books, including Five Men Who Broke My Heart, The Byline Bible, and the one that we'll talk about today, which was just released on January 12th, The Forgiveness Tour, How to Find the Perfect Apology. She's written for the New York Times, New York Magazine, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the LA Times, L, Oprah, Wired, and the New Yorker Online. She's also an award-winning writing professor and very beloved by her students. She's taught her popular instant gratification class, uh, instant gratification takes too long courses at the new school NYU Columbia, and it is now available, I believe, in private online via Zoom, like everything else. And a full disclaimer, I've been a student in Sue's classes. If I paid more attention to her over time, I would get paid more for my writing instead of doing it for free. And whenever anyone tells me they want to get serious about writing and getting published, I tell them to find you. Thank you. We have so much to cover today, but as I always like to do, I like to start by having you tell our listeners a little bit about where you're from. Uh, from Michigan, and actually, you uh, you left a couple lines, a, a couple words out of my bio. It's usually a Susan Shapiro is the best selling author of thirteen books. Her family hates. Her family hates. I forgot. <laughs> Very important to get that Midwestern uh, uh, opinion in there. Well, you have a line about that, don't you? That isn't there something that you tell your students about? Oh yeah, uh, the first piece you write that your family hates means that you found your voice. That you found your voice. I love that. I love that. So you're from Michigan. I don't think anyone who would meet you would ever assume that for a minute. Because I hear the accent, the A. Some people look at me and they go, Michigan. And I'm, I'm like, how do you know? It's the, the A apparently still gives it away. In your voice. But if I've met you several times over, over the course of the last, I believe, it, 20 years, I think that was the first time I took a class with you. And to me, you're the definition of the quintessential New Yorker. You live in the village. And as I do, you have far too many black shirts and black pants sitting in your closet. <laughs> but success did not happen overnight for you. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah. So I moved to New York and did my... Uh, a graduate degree in poetry, uh, starting with Nobel Pulitzer Prize winning poets. Uh, I always say that I spent, let's see, it was uh, four years undergrad and six years in graduate school uh, studying, writing and studying writing. And I came out not even knowing how to write a cover letter to send out any of the work I'd spent all those years uh, perfecting. Uh, I was a failed poet. Uh, A mentor told me I had too many words, not enough music. <laughs> and I kept trying to figure out, I mean, I knew my subjects early on, which was, you know, pathetic relationships and ridiculous addictions and obsessions, but I didn't know the form. So the poetry didn't work. I tried doing, I love doing book reviewing to get paid for my opinion, 
but uh, couldn't make a living doing that and wasn't quite funny enough to be a comedy writer. So I just sort of bounced around. And uh, I always like, I sort of took the the topics I would write about in my poetry kind of wound up in essays and humor pieces. And I wound up writing for women's magazines, um, which was fun. And I, uh, I had a job at the New Yorker at one point. So I knew I was getting closer with newspapers and magazines and, um, and then, uh, yeah, it just took me a long time to figure it out. I started teaching at night to make a living. And at one point, all my teachers, uh, all my students were publishing books. So it was like I was a wedding planner who couldn't get married. And uh, uh, finally, it took me a lot of therapy and a lot of help. And I started doing books in my 40s. And then it was that that was just uh, I started out, as you said, with five men who broke my heart and lighting up. In fact, uh, my new book, uh, the forgiveness for how to find a perfect apology is actually a sequel to lighting up. And so, uh, um, yeah, so it took a long time to figure out how to do it, how to, how to do it. You know, I remember one of the things that I noticed immediately about you when I met you that was different from other writing teachers that I had come across that was beyond being a really great editor and helping your students to shape their stories. You really gave solid practical advice about how to pitch and how to get paid for it. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's funny because I write a lot about um, the, uh, my dad was a doctor and he used to play this disease game with my, with my brilliant science brain brothers at dinner, which was a 42 year old Cambodian refugee vomiting blood, schistosomiasis, past the potatoes. And, but so what I realized at a certain point even though I didn't understand, wasn't into science at all or math or medicine. But what I realized later was that what they would constantly do was they would diagnose a problem and then they would spend a lot of time talking about how do you fix it? Do you give a medication? Do they need surgery? Do you, is it an emergency room? Is it, you know, are they gone? Are they a goner? You know, so, so I think, I think weirdly, because people joke that I was a book doctor or a, a writing doctor. So I think weirdly, I subconsciously emulated that. So what good is it if you if you just sort of say to someone, this doesn't work, that's not really diagnosing it. So what I would say, you know, it would be much more helpful to say the whole first two pages don't work. If you cut that and do this and do that, then it would make sense for this. And it was kind of like doing surgery on it. And then, then it would work. And that was actually, that was the kind of advice that would help me. You know, whoever, I mean, nobody in the history of the world has ever been helped with, oh, this is sort of good, but not quite, you know, what does that mean? Um, Yeah, and I was lucky because at NYU, I had really brilliant professors and critics who would go over my work line by line and tell me what, you know, I wanted directives, you know, I didn't want anything vague. So I started emulating that. And uh, I also was very frustrated that it took so long for me to figure out how to get published in all these amazing authors and professors I studied with, nobody was really talking, nobody would talk at all about getting published or, you know, what kind of work you would submit to which editor or getting paid. So nobody talked about that. So there's, there's that line, you become what's missing. So it took me so many years to figure it out. And when it came time to teaching, when the new school asked me to teach for them and NYU asked me to teach, I thought carefully about what, what, what do I have to add to the conversation? Because, you know, I mean, I studied with Joseph Brodsky and, uh, um, you know, E.L. Doctorow and uh, Galway Canal and Sharon Owls, you know, so there's these geniuses that are teaching all kinds of writing that, that are easily available. So I didn't really, 
I didn't really want to do like poetry 101, fiction 101, journalism 101, because there were already so many great people teaching it. So I thought, you know, what do I what do I have to add or what could I offer that's different? And I realized that nobody is teaching people how to get published, how to, how to, you know, be a feature journalist, how to get books out there. And it took me so many years to, to do it. And I remember when the new school asked me to teach, they said, you know, will you come teach for us. And I said, you know, I spent thousands of dollars getting my graduate degree and I came out not even knowing how to do a cover letter to send out my work. I don't want to do fiction 101, poetry 101. Can I, you know, can I try something new? I have my own method. And I called it the instant gratification takes too long method. And they were like, we're the new school, do anything you want. You know, they, you know, and so I tried it and it was just like, literally, I think the first class I tried it, it was, uh, there were 15 weeks, there were 12 students and like eight of them got published and four of them got a thousand bucks or more for their first piece. So I was like, okay, this works. Yeah, no, it really, you're, you're, you're a genius at that. You have almost a, I hate to use the word formula, but you almost have a formula for what you need to do. Sure. But, um, and again, I think it's the, that's the sales aspect of it that no one wants to talk about that you seem to be really good at. I always tell my marketing students that everything's a pitch. They don't like hearing that, <laughs> but I think it's true even for creatives. Well, also, what is this, you know, because are you, are you scrawling into your journal, you know, um, you know, are you scrawling into your journal for yourself? You know, are you, is this going to be a poetry book in 22 years? Like, you know, what's your goal? And a lot of, especially the journalism students, but the nonfiction students, um, you know, their goal is they want to get published. And that's just sort of vague. Like, where do you want to get published? Do you want to get paid? Are you trying to do a book? Do you have an opinion you're trying to put out? Are you working on an essay? So I have found that the more specific, um, you know, the more specific students get, the more likely something can happen fast. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, um, I think what you do there is that you are a creative, but you're also practical and you're thinking about it again from a marketing standpoint. It's like, what's your, di- even with the class that you created, what's your differentiating factor? Yeah. What I don't use the word, I don't use the word marketing, but I do have a lot of editors in my online, my zoom classes. Now it's really exciting because I can get the top editors from all over the country. will zoom, zoom in and they'll say, you know, this is what I'm looking for. You know, this is what, don't send me this. This is what I'm looking for. And sometimes people, sometimes in my first class, they want to send me pieces and pitches. And I'm like, just first do the introduction, meet the editors, and then give it to me the second week. And by the second week, it's completely different because there's just like 10 things I could teach somebody in two hours that would make the chances of them getting published or even launching a book a billion times easier just because I've been doing this so long. So, um, yeah, so the Zoom classes have been hilarious. They're really fun. I have one class I think I had in the morning. It was in Hong Kong. I had Hong Kong, Malaysia, and Vietnam were waking up in the morning, and in the same Zoom Hollywood Squares screen, there was uh, Brussels and Germany and uh, um, Italy were going to bed, you know, so it was such a cool – they're really fun all over the country and world. I know it's it's kind is kind of amazing. I think there's been so many downsides to the pandemic, but I think the our adaptation to using things like Zoom suddenly makes something like what you do and how you can help people. You can have a global reach as opposed to you have to be in New York and to be physically sitting in a class. So let's get to the new book, The Forgiveness Tour. I think, if I'm not mistaken, the official publication date was January 12th. Am I correct on that? Yes. 
First of all, I loved it. I think it might be my favorite of all of your books. Thank you. Can you tell us the premise and how this came to be? Yeah, it was kind of like a 10-year disaster. Let's see, it wasn't. (laughs) Um, So I had written uh, the memoir, Lighting Up, How I Stopped Smoking, Drinking, and Everything Else I Loved in Life Except Sex, which was funny. And it was about, you know, addiction specialist, and I quit cigarettes and alcohol and uh, dope. And it, 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 that was sort of a fun book and it was really easy to write. And it was, I just, it was just everything about it was really great, except for the fact that it didn't sell very many copies, but it was fun. And so, um, 10 years later, I guess, let's see, was it, no, it was actually five years after that came out. I, um, had a falling out with the addiction specialist and a really horrible falling out. And it freaked me out. And I started writing about it. And in my head, I thought, oh, this will just be a fast, quick, funny, um, like a sequel to uh, to lighting up. But then it just didn't work. And it got more complicated. And it almost worked. And then I somewhat somebody would tell me another project, like I could do a Barbie book in 10 minutes. And that was beautiful. But then three years later, I would go back to forgiveness tour and agents were still saying this doesn't make sense or wait a second, or, you know, but what's the real story here? And I had a, uh, my friend, Tom Reese, a colleague who's a Pulitzer Prize winning historian, he had liked the co-authored book I did, The Bosnia List. And he also, I think I, we talked about a Holocaust survivor friend who had come to my event um, at uh, Politics and Prose. And so Tom was actually, he said, you know, you have all these fascinating stories of people you know that have sort of monumental traumas like the Holocaust and, and uh, Kennan, who was the victim of um, uh, ethnic cleansing because he was Muslim in the Bosnian war. And so he's like, instead of sort of doing a light, funny, chiclety kind of, you know, memoir, why don't you open it up and, and make it bigger and heavier, you know? And, and I thought that was an interesting idea. And all of a sudden, as I started, I mean, I was already sort of asking a lot of clergy and uh, religious leaders and rabbis I knew and and um, swamis and imams, like their take on forgiveness, because I was really trying to figure out I couldn't, I'm the type of person that I could, I could forgive anybody if they apologize. But here was this important mentor in my life for 15 years who he had a big falling out and he refused to admit he was wrong or apologize and I couldn't get over it. So it's kind of sort of searching to understand, can you forgive someone without an apology, how to deal with it? So anyway, so then I started asking students and colleagues and friends, you know, I I would tell them my story and I would say, do you have, is there an apology in your life that you're owed that you never got? And oh my God, every time I would say that, the floodgates would just open and people would just tell me these horror stories, these amazing stories. And I was a journalist for a lot of years, so I started writing it down. So the book kept morphing into different, you know, it, you know, is it a memoir? Is it history? Is, you know, is it oral history? Is it, uh, you know, is it self-help? Is it, uh, you know, just kept, it just kept morphing. And then, um, and then my dad got sick. And so it sort of, I don't know, it just kept changing. And then interestingly, right before the pandemic, it seemed to come together. 
and I had done um, another book that was a bestseller with Skyhorse Press. So I pitched Skyhorse Press and they said yes, right before the pandemic. And weirdly, so it's really been like 10 or 11 years since I've been working on it. And now weirdly, everyone's like, oh my God, how did you get so timely? You know, And I'm like, oh good, I finally hit the zeitgeist because I was 11 years late in my project. Maybe that's the reason it took 11 years. Maybe that's yeah. part of it. Yeah, it was meant to come out now, I guess. It, it, there is, there's definitely a timeliness to, to, to it that is, um, you know, I think there's just so much anger out there in the world right now. And an apology or two could be pretty healing. Um, certainly, we've had a president for the last four years who's probably never apologized for anything in his life. But um, there's definitely something very timely on it. You know, one of the things that I noticed when I was reading it, and um, I don't, we might have been told this already, is this idea of how it's this series of interconnected essays. I sort of saw a Netflix future for this. Somebody else said that. Somebody else said that. I love Netflix. I actually have a former student of mine who made a movie, um, is now adapting Five Men It Broke My Heart, and we were just saying it could be like a Netflix miniseries. So let's see. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. They have, there's one that I watched about, I think it was about the pandemic. I, fig, I forget what it's called, and they seem to have slapped that one together pretty quickly. But I can see it. I can definitely see it as um, as a series of a Netflix series. Now, I know that the, the subheading on this was how apologies can help you move forward in life. No, that wasn't mine. Mine was the forgiveness tour, how to find the perfect apology. So some PR person wrote that. So I... I Interesting, know. because I, it, I that's not what I... For me, it, my takeaway is that this is more about how forgiving can set you free. I called it the forgiveness tour, how to find the perfect apology. And I actually have a piece coming out this week which is about how if there's if there's something bothering you and you feel you are deserved an apology, there are things that you could do to make it more likely to happen. And so on one hand, it's kind of ironic because, of course, I did everything wrong, but sort of stumbled into freaked out and, you know, asked every person I ever met their take and then sort of stumbled into the perfect apology. But there really are. I learned there really are many ways that one could get an apology that you feel you're deserved. So I definitely talk about that in the, in the book and in this uh, excerpt from it. Do you think now that you've gone through the whole thing, and, and I'm not sure I ever was really clear on this, that you can forgive without the apology? You can, you can forgive without the apology, but not forget. Like, that's kind of how I am. I, for, I have forgiven people in my life, but I've never, without an apology, but I have not necessarily forgotten what happened. I think it depends, you know, and, and one of the things that I talk about in the book is there's this billion dollar forgiveness industry that pretty much promotes radical forgiveness all the time, everywhere. And that 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 sort of bullshit, you know, and, and I read I, that book, too. I yeah. saw that was in the list of the books that I forget what who wrote it. But, yeah, it was, but, but so I just so, no, I do not think you should forgive everybody, everything uh, point blank, regardless of, you know, what they did how they how they apologized, if they atoned, what the reparation was. I think every single story is different, every falling out, every problem, every apology, every relationship. So I think it's much more nuanced than than a lot of the forgiveness books and podcasts and uh, um, you know uh, gurus tell you. So I would say, um, people, people, after they read the book, they say to me, are you more likely to forgive now? And I say, no, I am 
more likely to apologize well to somebody if I feel I did something wrong. And I'm more apt to pay attention to somebody apologizing to me. And Mm -hmm. I'm more apt to crystallize exactly what I want. So if somebody says, I'm sorry, if that hurts you, I'll come back and I'll say, well, that's not really an apology, you know? And, and, uh, so, you know, so I learned a lot, but no, I didn't learn to be more forgiving. I think I learned my own limitations. How were you able to interconnect these essays? I, I think that's, it, it, it's just such a, a wonderful flow. They're not essays. It was a memoir. And so for me, it was, you know, I already had written the beginning and the end. And I was sort of uh, doing all kinds of interviews that I was sort of putting a, putting in the interviews and, um, you know, the interviews with clergy and, and religious leaders and, and also the quotes, you know, because I would find all these forgiveness quotes for 10 years that I loved and I wanted the, my favorite quotes to be put in. And I so when I started interviewing people, I um, to me, it was, you know, it was all the same narrative, um, but I decided instead of um, instead of sort of the nonfiction books that go by theme, I sort of liked keeping almost like in an oral history vein, I I liked keeping specific interviews with one person. And then it seemed as if each, I mean, I interviewed a thousand people, but so the ones that I chose were um, interviews where people told me a story that I thought had something really universal to teach us, teach me, you know? So, so for me, it was, so just for an example, um, well, so the Holocaust survivor, Manny Mandel, who's a family friend, um, even though Germany did issue an official apology, he never forgave the Nazis and he thrived out of spite. So right. I, that fascinated me, you know, because here's a successful, very successful man who is was a psychotherapist with two kids and four grandkids and um, and is, a uh, um, you know, involved with the Holocaust Museum. And, you know, so so that was that was really interesting and fascinating. Um, I mean, when I interviewed Kenan Trebinsevic, who's my co-author about the Bosnian War, what he 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 didn't want to forgive at all. And what happened with him, which was really interesting, is by becoming a spokesperson against the injustice that happened to him, he healed himself that way. And really fascinating things happened to him that way. In fact, he had never um, I mean, he used to in when we wrote in the, in our book, Bosnia, uh, the Bosnia list. He, there was a line about how I'd never kissed a girl from home. And it was about how he was exiled at 12 years old and he'd never been to Sarajevo, the capital, and he'd never dated a Bosnian woman and he'd never driven a car and he'd never gone to a bar for a drink. And um, after the book came out and he, where he really told the truth about, you know, an expose of every single thing that he remembered that happened to his family, you know, and there are hundreds of thousands of people that were murdered by this, by the, the Christian Orthodox Serbs. So he got a lot of letters from everyone, and he got this beautiful letter from uh, a woman from Sarajevo, who's thank you for speaking up for our people. And they met online, and she was beautiful, and they're now married. And uh, and and he told me like so he was driving her to meet her family in Sarajevo to have a drink to propose, you know. So but anyway, so so by so I say about him by being willing to go back to his past, he found his future. Uh, there's another there's a mom who was trying to reconcile with her son. And, you know, they always say um, love means never having to say you're sorry. She kept saying she was sorry 
over and over and over again for eight years, even though she didn't think she did anything wrong, and then finally reconciled with him. So I thought that's a good lesson because a lot of people think either love means not having to say you're sorry or you say you're sorry once and they don't accept it and it's over. And it's never over. You could keep trying. You know, so so there were just all these different ways that people, um, all, all these different sort of lessons that each story, so each story I picked, I thought had something else really um, counterintuitive and interesting to say about the whole idea of, you know, atonement and, and forgiveness. But I also think it's, I think it's just really beautiful the way you organize those stories. They each seem to build on each other until you got to the end. Thanks. It was complicated because I couldn't figure out whether I should do it in chronological order or geographical order because I did go around the country. I was, I was doing book touring anyway, but so I was in Michigan and Boston and DC and LA, um, you know, I'm back in New York. So I, it, and Florida. So I wasn't, I, yeah, I wasn't clear, but th- my writing group really helped me a lot with it. And, um, yeah, for some reason, it just, it, it, it's so fascinating that right before the pandemic, it all came together after 11 years of working on it. I guess it was its time, right? It's certain true. things, certain things take time because that is their time. You know, one of the things that, um, that hit me when I was reading it, there's a lot of things that hit me. And I think I, um, might have mentioned this already to you. I might have said this before we got on the call that a lot, especially a lot about what you wrote about your dad, but how people remember the apologies and not necessarily what the reason for the apology was. My mom recently passed and there were certain stories in before she was, before she was the last couple of months, she, I think she knew on some level. So there were certain stories she kept repeating and she kept telling me one that I have no recollection of, of some argument we had somewhere along the line when I was a kid. We argued a lot when I was a kid. We argued a lot as adults too, but never meant we didn't love each other. But there was one particular time when I was about 13 and she said she remembered that I left the house and then I came back in and I said, mom, I'm sorry, you were right. And that was the end of it. And she never remembered what the argument was about. She only remembered that apology, how these things can really stick inside of our heads. So there's something to that apology thing for sure. So let's see what else we have here. Can you talk a little bit about what you talked about, the aspects of an effective apology? Yeah. So according to several books that I read and and really um, from interviewing everyone, the four aspects of a great apology and effective apology are number one, an acknowledgement of the offense, uh, number two, uh, explanation for why it happened. Number three, uh, sincere regret and um, why or how you're not going to do it again. And the the last one would be a reparation. And by reparation, how are you going to fix this? Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Like, you know, at, at the end of the book, I um, go on a forgiveness binge myself. So there was a, a close friend of mine who... Um, she had contacted me um, pretty much basically, you know, to sum it up, she emailed me and said, you know, I've written this 500 page memoir about surviving breast cancer. I want you to read it. Here it is. And I was in the middle of um, what was going on with the forgiveness tour. And I just said, uh, you know, I, I don't do that. I'm too busy. Um, I'll, I could recommend a ghost editor you could hire. And so she was very offended and we didn't speak for a while. So after I got the apology that I wanted after six months and I was sort of realizing, you know, how important that was to me and how it changed everything. I wanted to, um, you know, I wanted to fix things. So I 
went back to her and I said, you know, in terms of a good apology, I said, you know, I I realized I was insensitive and abrupt with you when you wanted to tell me about your project. And I apologize for that. I was going through a really rough time. And, um, you know, I know that the, um, you know, you went through hell and you wanted to share it with me. And I definitely want to hear, and I'm teaching a class, um, you know, in a couple of weeks where I help people bring in their work and get published, would you take the class for free? And that way I could read your work that way and I could help you publish it. So I remember she said to me, Susie, I would love to. And Susie's like the only people who know me from, from a long time ago call me Susie. So I had a joke like I'm in again. Okay. But <laughs> so that was a good apology, you know, because, because it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just sorry. We haven't spoken in a while. It was like, I screwed up. Right. This, you know, I screwed up. This is how I screwed up. This is why I screwed up. I don't want it. I don't want that to happen again. Here's a reparation. Here's something maybe I could do to make, to, to rectify the situation. So that, you know, so that's, that, you know, there's a lot of different ways one can offer a reparation. Um, and it could be anything, you know, with the Holocaust, clearly it was money, you know, it was, uh, um, you know, or, or having somebody that's, you know, that, that having a criminal be in jail, but there's a lot of different ways one can repair a uh, a connection if you really want to. That that is for sure. So a, a couple of little things before we wrap up. I, I do want to ask you. These have been such crazy times, and how have you had to adapt? I know you've taken a lot of your classes online. Have you increased that? What's keeping you sane in these crazy times? Yeah, so definitely the teaching, the Zoom teaching has just been amazing. And I just uh, love it. And I'm able to take more students. And for some reason, my students are getting published left and right. I think it might be that like in major places like New York Times, New Yorker, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. I think what's going on is that um, people who normally, you know, if I say write about your humiliation essay and they would write about getting drunk and puking all over themselves all of a sudden, they got COVID and they can't get tested or they got thrown out of their dorm room or they, um, you know, their mother's sick and they're in the same apartment or, uh, you know, they lost their job and their sublet, you know, so, so people, I think maybe people just haven't, of course, mothers, working mothers are, are going insane and it's stressing out relationships and people that are alone or drinking alone. And, you know, so I don't know, people are just writing really dramatic, fascinating pieces. So that, and it's actually weirdly been exciting because, um, you know, one upside of the pandemic is just to help so many people get their, de- you know, debut clip in the New York times or in Vogue, or it's like, wow. So that's, that's been thrilling. Um, and I did, I have been working on three books. So this is the first of, of, of a series that's coming out. So that's kind of a thrill, I, you know, and I'm very blessed and I'm very lucky because, you know, my husband is a professor at NYU. He's a screenwriter and a professor at NYU. So, you know, we always sat around in sweats all day writing and, you know, <laughs> so, so we're sort of, you know, so, so it, it hasn't changed our life that much. And then that, you know, it did, it was an adjustment to teach online, but we're very, very lucky. We kept our jobs and we're able to, you know, and, um, and I, no, really, I feel the same way. I feel my teaching is what the teaching is the part of what I do that really got me through the pandemic. If I didn't have my students back in March, I think it would have been much more difficult for me. Yeah, I've also I, I also was getting paid, but also just the fact that I had that 
connection right away, you know, even though it's not in person. Yeah. Also, I live right near Washington Square Park. So I I go outside and walk four or five miles a day every day. I don't think I've missed hardly any days except if it's pouring rain um, or one snowstorm. But so that really helps too, because, you know, getting outside is definitely um, what there's, there's sort of a, um, I'm trying to remember the line. It's about, uh, let me see if I find it. It's uh, about the um, nature's best doctors or something like that. Let's see if I could find it. I wrote it down. Um, I'll find it, but it's something like, uh, um, you know, sun, exercise, air, something like that. Yeah, I think it's, I think this whole thing has given us all an opportunity to be more appreciative of little things like walking in nature. Yeah. <laughs> Washington Square Park technically is nature. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's nature by any New York standard. Um, what advice? Oh, here, it is, here it is. I found it. The six best doctors, sunshine, water, rest, air, exercise, diet. <laughs> Uh, that is that is very very true. What advice would you give to anyone who's listening in here that has a story in them that they want to write? Well, you know, my book Byline Bible teaches people uh, how to get published in five weeks and in top places all over the country. So I would say check it, check that, check that out. And um, in it, I was able to include sixty full pieces that students of mine published for the assignments for my classes and, and link thousands more. So I would say that reading what you want to be writing, reading the kind of pieces that, you know, debut pieces from students really helps. And also read what you want to be writing. I mean, I have a theory that I buy five newspapers a day. So I say to my students, you know, if you're, if you're reading it for free off the internet, how are you going to get paid for it? So I feel like it's a karma thing. So buy, buy newspapers and magazines and books, buy the kind of thing you want people to be paying you for. So I do that. Um, one of my speakers talks a lot about being a good literary citizen, you know, so there's a lot of ways that you could promote other people's work or, or buy books or buy newspapers and magazines. And if you like if you like something posted or tweet it, you know, it makes you look generous. And also it perpetuates the exact thing that you want to be part of. Good advice. Good advice. No, no doubt. No doubt about it. So, first of all, everyone should buy this book, um, I believe that you can find it on Amazon, even though we also want to make sure that we are supporting our local booksellers if we can. And and you it, I mean, but you could also get it at uh, the Strand. Barnes & Noble has it. The Strand Bookstore has it. Powell's has it. Um, yeah, so go, you know, indie, all the indie bookstores have it too. In fact, I'm doing, I'm doing my launch, uh, my, my birthday, I'm doing my launch at the Strand Bookstore on January 23rd. And it's, I think it's seven fifty to get in and it's, it's like save the strand bookstore while you're coming to a really cool event. And I actually am, I have several of the students who I interviewed in the book are going to join me for a talk about forgiveness. Is that a zoom, is that a zoom event it's or a zoom event? It's a zoom event. And I said, we're going to talk about forgiveness, right? Uh, forgiveness writing and why publishing well is the best revenge. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. I love that. So where can people find you online? Anything else you want to throw in there about anything that you have coming up outside of that? Susan Shapiro, Susan Shapiro net. You can find me on, um, I'm prop Sue one, two, three on Insta. I'm um, Susan Shapiro net on Twitter um, I'm very reachable and I answer all my emails because I have to do so many cold calls myself. Yeah. So come to um, the coolest thing would be come to the Strand Bookstore launch on my birthday, January 23rd. It's a Saturday night from five to seven and help save one of the coolest independent bookstores and uh, and meet some of my students who are going to talk about um, the the really brave stories that they shared with me. Okay. Wonderful. 
Susan, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you. Uh, I will make sure all of those links are in the show notes. And thanks again. Fantastic. Happy New Year. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing Mindfulness and Martinis. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find us and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you've got a question you'd like answered or a topic you'd like me to cover, please drop me a note. Info at joannetombrakis.com. And until next time, remember... Whatever got you to where you are isn't enough to keep you there.